Evening, everyone. Got a Bible? Be really helpful uh, to turn to the New Testament tonight, John's Gospel, and we're in John's Gospel, chapter two. So, the Gospel of John, chapter two. We're going to start a new series, as I mentioned this morning. In John's Gospel, there are seven miracles. Seven miracles are described as signs, and they point to something. What does a, a sign point to? Imagine you're out on a trip. Maybe the car's full with family members, you're heading out for the day, you're heading for a picnic, and as you drive along the road, you see the signpost, and it says, beauty spot, half a mile down the road. What do you do? You pull in the car beside the signpost, you get everybody out of the car, you get the picnic rug out, set the rug out beside the signpost, get the sandwiches and the cups out, and start having your picnic. Of course you don't. You don't stop at the signpost. You look at where the sign is pointing to, because that's the worst place to stop and have your picnic. There is something so much better further down the road. That is the purpose of a sign. It points to something greater. The signpost is not the destination. That's what we have here in John's Gospel. We have signs. Now, these signs are impressive things. They're miraculous things. But actually, they're pointing to something even greater. They're pointing to somebody even greater. The significance of who this person is, Jesus Christ. And these signs are recorded in John's gospel for a very specific purpose. And we know it's a specific purpose because John tells us right at the end of his book. In chapter 20, we read these words. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So when Jesus lived here on earth, he did lots of other signs, miraculous things, things we don't know anything about because they're not recorded in Scripture. But then he goes on, but these are written, these seven signs that we're going to look at over the next seven weeks, but these are written so that you may believe. You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the destination. That is the purpose of these signs. We don't want to start, stop at the signposts. We want to follow where they're pointing. We want to believe. We want to believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, and there's a great blessing for those who follow the signpost. And the great blessing is there's life. There's real life. There's life in all its fullness. There's the kind of life that Dave has been talking about, joy real joy, and that joy comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Let's read John's gospel. Let's think about the first sign, and let's follow the sign and see where it leads us here this evening. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine, and Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now became, now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. 
but you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Have you ever been to the perfect wedding? Does the perfect wedding exist? There are many brides out there who have dreamed for years, maybe grooms as well, they have dreamed of the perfect wedding. They have planned for months, and they are desperate to have that fairy tale experience, the perfect wedding day. Sadly, life is not like that, and something usually goes wrong at weddings. Now, Joanne and I are celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary this year. I don't know how she stuck me for so long. And when we got married on the 8th of July, the year 2000, it was a stressful time in the build-up because there were lots of things that started to go wrong, even though we'd spent ages planning the wedding. When we got married 20 years ago, it was the height of the Drum Cree protests. Remember those? People are old enough to remember. And there was lots of roadblocks, and people were burning out cars, and there was trouble on the streets. Right in the week when we had planned our wedding 18 months before. And we were getting married on the Saturday. On the Monday, the person from Malone House, where we were having our wedding reception, rang Joanne and said, I'm sorry to tell you this, but we're cancelling your wedding reception. It's not safe for the kitchen staff to get there, or the uh, waiters or waitresses. And I thought I'd be really spiritual at this point. And I said to Joanne, Joanne, the really important thing in the day is the church service. And if we can get the church service, that's the spiritually significant part. You know, everything else is just, you know, added extras. Joanne wasn't quite thinking along the same lines as I thought, wanted the perfect wedding. Now, thankfully, the trouble sort of died down a little bit towards that week, and the wedding was able to go ahead, and the reception happened. Although there were some guests refused to go to our wedding because they were worried about traveling along the roads. And then there was the bridesmaid's dress that caused a lot of stress when Joanne came to pick up a bridesmaid's dress a couple of days before the wedding. The woman who owned the shop had promised these alterations, but she didn't do them. And she said there was no time to do them, and she just handed the dress that no longer fitted the bridesmaid. And Joanne had to find somebody to alter it at the last minute. I think it was about an hour before the wedding. The bridesmaid finally got the dress, and thankfully it did fit. And we'd looked at wedding in summer thinking in our pictures, it's going to be sunshine, we're going to be outside with our guests getting these wonderful photographs. No, it's Northern Ireland. It poured on our wedding day, and so photographs were difficult. And we had all these things that seemed to go wrong at the wedding. The only thing perfect on our wedding day was Joanne herself. And that's why we're still married after 20 years. Josie's like, I'm going, Dad, how embarrassing. Now I'm thankfully at the other side of weddings. But there's stress when you're a pastor and you're responsible for what happens here in the church. Things can go wrong. Things almost went wrong at Laura and Johnny's with a gas leak in the church. I thought it was going to be the first wedding. We're going to have to abandon it before the bride came up the aisle. But there's a stress there. The most stressful wedding I've done as a pastor was the wedding where the groom arrived an hour late. Not the bride, the groom. It wasn't somebody from our church. I was doing it for friends in Nittenbreda Baptist. And his transport had broken down on the motorway. And the poor bride was going round in circles before he arrived. At Christmas time, I actually went to a wedding where I wasn't responsible for the service. It was a good friend who was getting married. And it was wonderful. It's the first wedding I've been to in years where I could relax. Because if something went wrong, it wasn't my 
fault. Mary, Jesus, and the disciples were invited to a wedding. Perhaps it was a, a close relative um, or a family friend, the fact that they were all invited to it. And it looks as if possibly Mary had a very hands-on approach. Maybe she was involved in the catering because she seemed to know what was happening and what had gone wrong. But the wedding they went to, disaster struck. They run out of wine. Now, that might seem like a big problem to us, but it was a major, major issue. It was a huge disaster at a Jewish wedding because Jewish celebrations at their weddings lasted for up to a week. And if you ran out of wine, the wedding was going to have to come to a very quick end. You were going to have to bring all the family members, the neighbors, the friends, and send them home early because a wedding, as I say, was like a gala occasion. The whole town was invited. It was a time of eating. It was a time of drinking. It was a time of joy. It was a time of celebration. And there's a Jewish phrase that was contemporary to Jesus' time, and it went like this, no wine, no joy. No wine, no joy. So at a party, if you had no wine, well, it wasn't much of a party to go to. There was no joy whatsoever. No wine, actually pack up and send everybody home. What had happened at this wedding was a serious social faux pas, and it really reflected badly on the bridegroom and his family, who were actually in those days responsible for organizing everything. It was such an error, it would never be forgotten by your neighbors and friends. Everybody would talk about your wedding for the wrong reasons for years and years and years to come. This would haunt the newlyweds. This was a bad start to their marriage. In fact, it's been recorded that in the time Jesus lived, there were lawsuits for occasions like this. Sometimes people took people to court because they'd run out of wine at weddings. That's how serious this was. It was an urgent situation, and it prompted a response. It prompted Mary to inform Jesus. Now, there's a song that we sing at Christmas, and it goes like this, Mary, did you know? Sort of questions how much Mary knew about Jesus Christ. Mary knew who Jesus was. We read that in the start of Luke's gospel. The angel appeared and told that your son is going to be the savior. He's the one sent from God. Now, she might not have known all the details. She might not have known that he was going to walk on water and these specific events in his life. But Mary knew exactly who Jesus was. Now, at this point, he hadn't performed any miracles. Because what's about to happen is his first miracle. So she has not witnessed with her own eyes some miraculous power. But she knew who her son was. And perhaps she was thinking in her mind, maybe Jesus could do something. Maybe Jesus, because he is God's son, could step into this dreadful situation. And if it was the wedding of a close family friend, she would be desperate to help them in this really, really tricky situation. And Jesus responds to her. He calls her woman. Sometimes people think that's a very curt way he's spoken to him. It's actually a, a common phrase. When he was on the cross and he addressed his mother, he used the same word, described her as woman. But he responds to her and he informs her that his hour has not yet come. His hour has not yet come. And that's true, his hour hasn't come. What is that referring to when it talks about his hour? It's talking about his glorification. That's a still a future event. He will be glorified through his death and his burial, his resurrection and his ascension. That hour hasn't yet come. But this day, he would show the first sign. This day, we would see the first glimpse, 
the first glimpse would break through of exactly who Jesus Christ is. He asks the servants there to fill six jars. Six jars that were normally used for cleaning, for washing. Jewish law required that before you sat down for a meal like they've been having here at this wedding, your hands had to be ceremonially washed. It was an outward religious ritual. But Jesus Christ takes these pots that are used for religious ritual and he gives them a completely different purpose. He gives them, makes them into jars that are used for drinking from. Because that's one of the reasons Jesus Christ has come into the world. That's one of the things we start to see in this sign, where this sign is pointing. You see, Jesus Christ came to fulfill the law. And because of what Jesus Christ was going to do through his life and his ministry and his death, there would no longer be any need for these ceremonial jars, this outward washing and ritual cleaning. Because when Jesus Christ was going to die on the cross, his blood would shed, be shed, and his blood would cleanse. Cleanse and clean in a way that this water in these jars would never be able to do. Clean once and for all. And so what he's doing here, he's actually taking these religious jars and he's giving them a better purpose because they're no longer needed. He would take the place of these jars. And he wants these people to fill it and he's going to fill it with something that brings joy. No wine, no joy. Lots of wine, lots of joy. And so he tells the servants to take the cup, to put it into the jar, to draw it out and take it to the master. What a strange request. They've run out of wine. Who wants to serve water at a wedding? But that's the request. And thankfully the servants... They do what they're asked to do. And something miraculous happens as water is turned into wine. And how does Jesus do that? Simply by speaking. He gives some instructions. The servants carry it out. And this water is turned into wine. What is that? It's a sign. It's a signpost. It's pointing somewhere. And where is it pointing? The person who can do this just by speaking must be somebody incredible. This must be somebody powerful. This must be somebody significant. Where is it pointing? Only God could do this. This person is God himself. And this is some miracle. Not only has he turned the water into wine, it's the best wine. The master of the, of the wedding is so surprised. You know what I mean? They give the best wine at the start, and then they give the rubbish stuff out at the end, but you have kept the best to last. This is top quality wine. It's also abundant wine. We're told that the water pots held 20 to 30 gallons. Well, let's go for the lower number. Six pots, 20 gallons. That's 120 gallons minimum. Some expert has worked out that would give you 2,000 glasses of wine. There is an abundance of wine at this wedding. And it's a significant miracle. It's a significant miracle for several reasons. Here's the first reason why it's significant, because it's the first sign that Jesus performed. Let's read the start of verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did in Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. The first thing he did that starts to give a glimmer, starts to give an insight into his glory, of his greatness, an insight into exactly who Jesus is. And it marked the beginning of his ministry, this first sign that helped to reveal exactly who he was. 
Now, his glory would be revealed in a greater measure. We talked about this, the hour that would come, his glorification, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. But every step of his ministry, as we follow him through John's gospel, every step of his ministry is revealing more of his glory. It's another signpost pointing you in the right direction. And what does this first sign do? It actually has its desired effect. Look at the second half of verse 11. And his disciples believed in him. So these disciples, they didn't stop at the signpost. They actually looked beyond it. They weren't overcome by, look at how much wine there is. It's probably the reaction of most people there. Look at this abundance of wine. They were able to take a step back and think, that's pointing somewhere. And if Jesus Christ is able to do this, he must be somebody special. And right at the start of the ministry, they've just been called to come and follow him. They don't have a full understanding of who he is. And even at this point, they don't have a complete understanding of who Jesus is. But with his first sign, they believe. They follow the signpost and they look exactly who Jesus Christ is. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of these signs, that you're able to see past the wine and look to the provider. To say they don't fully understand, more will be revealed over time. But all these stories are clues. Clues that we have in Scripture to exactly who Jesus is. Now, as we work our way through these, you'll soon see that these are not difficult clues. You don't need to be Sherlock Holmes to crack these clues. They're straightforward. In fact, the clues and the signs that we have here in Scripture are straightforward enough that the children here at our service tonight can understand them. That a child can see the sign and see where the sign is pointing and understand and believe and put their trust in Jesus Christ as well. And all the signs that we see here in John's gospel point in the same direction. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. This is the one sent from God to save his people. And when you understand the signs, and when you follow where they're pointing, you receive a great treasure. There is a great treasure at the end of the signs after you follow them. And what is that treasure? We find it in this verse here. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the treasure at the end. Life, eternal life real life, life the way Christ is, uh, 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 God has designed it to be, Christ with joy, our life with joy, that's the reward when we follow all of these signs. Sadly, many people stop in the wrong place. Perhaps they stop at the sign, they get fixated with that. For many, the thought of abundant wine would be great, but they didn't go any further. We're going to see that later on when we come to the feeding of the 5,000. What happened the day when Jesus fed the 5,000? How many converts were there? How many people became believers? Scripture records there was none. Because what happened that day? The people got fixated with the sign. They got fascinated with the bread. And they wanted somebody who could just give them endless bread. And so Jesus had to preach a sermon and said, I am the bread of life. Look beyond this bread. It's actually pointing to something even greater. Don't stop at the sign. Follow the sign to where it is pointing. Can I ask you tonight, have you ever followed the signs? 
And have you followed the signs to exactly where they are pointing? And have you done what this verse says? Have you believed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And have you, by believing, experienced life? Life in his name. Life in all its fullness and life as God has designed. Have you put your faith in him? Here's what some people do. Some people come to the sign and they know exactly where it's pointing. They know it's pointing at Jesus, that he is the Christ, he is the Savior. And even though they know it, they still all head off in a different direction in life. They ignore the sign because they don't want to go that way. And yet they miss out. And maybe that's you. Maybe you come here every week and you know these stories and you know the truths and you know that this is the right path in life and yet you still don't want to go down it. You want to go your own way and yet you miss out on the greatest treasure, life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. You need to come off the path you're on tonight and you need to follow where these signs point and put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But there's a second significance to this miracle. What this miracle does is it gives us great insight. It gives us great insight into the kind of Messiah that Jesus Christ will be. As I said already, wine has a real significance to the Jewish people. Wine in the Old Testament was a symbol of joy. There are several verses you find in the Psalms, the book of Judges, that talk about wine and they associate wine with joy. There's also prophecies in the Old Testament that link the coming messianic kingdom with wine and the joy that there will be found in the messianic kingdom as well. That Jewish phrase again, no wine, no joy. There was certainly no joy at this wedding. There was panic, there was desperation, until Jesus Christ steps in. And what does Jesus do at this wedding? He gives them an abundance of wine, and by doing so, he gives them an abundance of joy. It's better than anything they have ever tasted before. And instead of the celebration, instead of the wedding being cut short, they can keep going. And because Jesus provided so much wine, there's a possibility this wedding actually lasted longer than it was planned to be. They could have kept going for days and days and days longer because Jesus had given them an abundance of wine. Now, for a Jewish reader who would have read this story, would have heard this story at the time of Jesus, their minds would have understood that it's, it's wasted a bit on us. But for a Jewish reader, they would have got this link. They would have known their Old Testament scriptures, and they would have known the link between wine joy and the coming messianic kingdom and with this first miracle what is starting to happen god's kingdom is starting to break through we're starting to see signs and glimpses of what christ's kingdom be like you see jesus christ is a messiah who brings joy real joy an abundance of joy. There is joy overflowing. Let's change that Jewish saying, no wine, no joy. No Christ, no joy. When you have Christ, you have joy. That's the kind of Messiah he will be. Yes, there are joys and pleasures that we can find in this world, 
Lots of things that can entertain us and maybe give us a, that feeling of joy in our heart. But here's the reality. With the, the joys and pleasures of this world, they will run, run out. They will disappoint at times. And they are nothing. They are pale imitations to the real joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. That's the kind of Messiah Jesus Christ is. He is somebody who brings joy. Now, I'm not against the joys of this world. God has created us to experience joy. He's created us to experience pleasure. That's part of life. That's the way God has created us and designed us. But what we always need to remember is that Christ offers something even better, the joy that he brings. And when Christ comes into your life, he brings joy. How do I know that? Well, when Christ comes into your life, the Holy Spirit comes into your life as well. And what is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, let's go through it. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What's the second one? Joy. That's what Christ brings. That's the kind of Savior he is. He brings joy into our hearts. Now, a joyless Christian is a contradiction. Have you ever met a joyless Christian? I've met a few. They haven't told their, their face for the rest of their life that they're, they're trusting in Jesus Christ, and they probably aren't. Because what's the fruit of the Spirit? What's the evidence that somebody has the Spirit of God in them? What's the evidence that somebody is born again, that Christ is in their life? Well, you'll find the evidence. You'll see the fruit. By their fruit, you shall know them. You will see love in their life. You will see joy. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's a bit down in the circumstances of life, because life is tough. We're not talking about those kind of things that, that, that worry us, that make us sad, the grief that we experience. But when you find a true believer, there's a joy. Oftentimes in difficult situations, but there's the joy of the Lord that comes because Christ has made a real difference in their lives. There's a joy when Christ changes your life. And that joy that comes is a foretaste of something else, a foretaste of what awaits all of the followers of Jesus Christ. Because what awaits us if we are trusting in Christ, if our hope is in him? One day we will be taken from this life and we will be with Christ forever and ever and ever. And what is that great celebration that awaits us in heaven? It's a marriage feast. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as it's sometimes described. There's a wedding celebration that waits for us in heaven. And there'll be a bridegroom, Jesus Christ, and a bride, his church. And if you're trusting in him, you're part of that. And one day you will be at that marriage celebration. And at that marriage celebration, what will the tone of it be? How will people be carrying on? How will they be acting? Do you know what you'll find there? Joy. Joy like you've never experienced before in your life. Eternal joy, an abundance, overflowing joy, joy that will never, ever come to an end. This still awaits us. That's what will come. And so what we see in this first sign is a sign of something to come. There's something even greater than this that still awaits those who trust in Jesus Christ. That's something, if you're a believer, to look forward to. See, Christ brings the best. In this wedding, what was the order? Well, they got wine at the start, but when Jesus stepped in, 
they got the best. And sometimes we use the phrase as we think about what awaits us, the best is yet to be. Is that right? So in this life, we can experience joy. We can know the joy of the Lord, and we can experience life, eternal life, life in all its fullness. But even with that, it's just a glimmer. It's just a glimpse. The best is yet to be. The best wine is yet to be. The real joy, the abundant joy is yet to be. When this old world passes away, when all the brokenness of this world is gone, and Jesus Christ, the Messiah, makes all things new. If you're a believer here tonight, that is something to look forward to. We haven't tasted the best wine yet. It's still to come. And that is our hope. And that is our confidence. Christ brings joy now. It's only a glimpse. The best wine is yet to be. And so keep trusting and keep looking to the one who is the Messiah, the one who is the Son of God, the one who is our hope, and the one who gives us real life and real joy. Keep looking to Christ. Let's pray.